Web3 Frontier. I'm your host, Igor Yuzo. Web3 Frontier focuses on founders and investors helping build the future of Web3, the plumbing of the new internet. I am also a co-founder of Defrag, a lending protocol for NFTs. You can visit defrag.fi for more information. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Dunworth, co-founder of Wire, a company that has made it easy to deposit fiat and convert it into crypto. They have some notable partners that you may recognize, such as MetaMask and OpenSea. We talk about what it is like building in crypto, having the right co-founders, the relationship between Bitcoin and Ethereum, the progression from Ethereum into DeFi and NFTs, as well as capturing value in Web3. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can subscribe to Web3 Frontier, where we release a podcast every week. Michael Dunworth, welcome. Hailing from Sydney, Australia and a co-founder of Wire. So why don't you start us off by giving us an introduction of who you are and what you do? Great. Thanks for having me, Igor. My name is Michael Dunworth. I co-founded a company called Wire, uh, Sendwire. Uh, we do fiat to crypto payments, you know, making it easy for people to deposit with a credit card to get their first, you know, 50 or $500 worth of crypto, like via MetaMask or other partners. Predominantly, we're actually an API infrastructure company. So we give like all the, the headache of going to market with KYC, banking infrastructure and all that. We did all that ourselves and then we basically productized it into an API suite. So much like you use Stripe or, you know, Braintree for certain things, we, we try and just take that position as an infrastructure provider for, you know, making life easier for protocol developers, Bitcoin developers, whoever they are getting into crypto. So basically making it easy to compliantly take money from someone's bank account and then turn it into crypto and make it show up in their wallet. That's great. What's your involvement with Wire now? So my involvement's actually sort of like uh, arm's length. I stepped away from CEO last year in the middle of Rona because it was just a total shit fight. Like I was over there, family was back here. They were talking about closing borders and shit. And I was like, oh, here we go. It's going to be like World War II or something. And you know, people are going to be locked <laughs> behind borders and shit. And I was like, all right, well, maybe it's a good time to take some time off. So I took some time off. And um, you know, now Yanni, my co-founder, he stepped in as CEO um, mm-hmm. now and he's been just running the ship and man, he's really, really good at what he does. How funny is this for a metric? Okay. So like if you're like, if you're a CEO, right, you're probably going to get measured on like the performance of your company. So since I yeah. stepped away and he stepped in, the company is like performed <laughs> like 19x better than ever. Like everything's more efficient. Everything's like producing more revenue, adding more value. So anyway, props to Yanni. I'm very fortunate to have someone like that by my side, grinding it out. So I mean, the yeah. good news is you still have equity, so it's kind of win-win. Yeah, there, right? yeah, 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 which is great. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, quite literally. So um, yeah, I'll take it. But, you know, that's that's kind of the relationship that co-founders need, right? You've got to have someone who's in the trenches with you, who's, you know, taking grenades with you. And, you know, one day you're going to have the best day ever and they're going to have the worst day ever and you're there to pick each other right. up. And- and, and vice versa. And, and, you know, for me, I was just, yeah, it was just the right thing to do. I felt, felt for the company, it was the best thing. Like, I just didn't have my head screwed on. It was like eight years of just burning the midnight oil. Like, crypto for eight years is like, you know, before, when we even started, there wasn't the word crypto. It was just it's like dog one. years, right? Time, dog time years, seven. dude. Dog years, <laughs> time seven. So, so, yeah, everyone needs a bit of, everyone needs a break. I think it's healthy and I definitely advocate for that. I know everyone talks about, you know, grinding and all that shit. Believe me, I've got more grinding hours and more nonsensical sleep patterns than any person in this game, I would say. And I promise you, it is, you will come off second best long term. Short term, you might get ahead, but long term, like I mean, cleaning up the pieces, like trying to walk every day and, you know, run and train <laughs> and all this, just trying to get some kind of normality back in my life. It's a fantastic thing. And look, it's all part of the process, right? You burn yourself out, yeah. you recover, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So let's go back to uh, where you started. You, know, you said that you uh, were in the game for how long now? Eight years? Yeah, about, yeah, well, nine now, probably, uh, you know, since 20, 2012, 2013. I moved to San Francisco, so I'm from Sydney, Australia. I moved to San Francisco, sort of like, you know, nerds, actors go to Hollywood, nerds go to San Francisco, that kind of vibe. You know, you go there to YOLO it and see if you can make something cool. Um, Moved into a hacker house and basically just set up shop there, bunk beds everywhere. And I met my co-founder, Yanni. This was 2012? 
this is sorry this is 2013 2013 yeah 20, so okay 2013. so 2013 you moved from sydney australia to san yep. francisco with your co-founder Yan, you met your co-founder yanni in he was san the francisco? dude on the bunk bed above me so everyone was in okay. bunk beds and he was the dude on the bunk bed above me and he was working at a you just kicked him yeah one night i kicked him i was like oi dude are you awake <laughs> yeah i'm awake <laughs> cool let's go build something we're, we're very like-minded. Like we have a different demeanor mm-hmm. in how we like function and operate probably like in, in a workplace setting. But I mean, like we always see eye to eye usually in, in most contexts, like we, we're sort of on the same wavelength when it comes to how we interpret new information. So, right. Well, that's imperative, right? Early on in building DNA culture in the startup, 100%. having some a homogenous mindset rather than like later on where you want more diversity. Yeah. And, you know, over time, as we scaled, like as a company, because, you know, 2013, it was just him and I. And, and then we hired our first person, Jack Gia, at the end of 2013, when we went into Boost VC. So Boost has got like an all-star record. Literally, I think they've got the best portfolio in crypto. Anyone, like no one even comes close to it. If you just go, like they're an incubator, basically, Y Combinator type, but just for Bitcoin and crypto and it's sort of future stuff, VR right. and AR now. But man, they've just got mm-hmm. every single company on the ground floor. Like every company we know of now, wow. My Crypto, Etherscan, like all these big, like behem- Coinbase, all these big behemoths, they all have a tie back to Boost. It's like, it's Boost is kind of like this, this parent of the industry that no one really knows about or speaks about as much as they should, but it's sort of been the one, you know, handing out the first checks for all these projects. So we went through that in 2013 and that was like, that was a wild ride. That was amazing. Right. You know, we learned a ton, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so 2013 is where it all sort of began. And then we've just been iterating, you know, iterating and evolving and adapting with the industry and what we'd saw, like, you know, so we, we, we originally started as a different product to what we are today. But the main thing was when we were building our product, which was the idea of building, you know, wallets and API and commerce services for crypto or Bitcoin. Right. When you're doing it and because the industry is so new, you kind of have to learn on the fly. So we actually ended up just saying, well, fuck, this is a really big pain in the ass to go and get all these licenses and figure all this stuff out as a fintech founder, like where we got no idea. So we had to figure it all out. And we were like, well, it's probably a better play. Everyone else is going to have to figure this out too. So we can try and protect it and say like, oh, screw you, we've got a head start. Or we could say, no, let's productize it and let everyone use our infrastructure that's all you know secure and compliant and we've done all that song and dance. And so that was kind of the idea. So we did that and we started pushing that out in 2015. That became the value add. Yeah, it was the value add, right? Because you've got to add value. You can have a great product, you can offer a great service, but if no one finds value in it, then... Is it really valuable? Yes, it solves a problem. Yes, it's a solution to something. But if it's not, you got to read the room, right? And the room changes their preference all the time. So, and the crypto world it uh, changes oh, quite my rapidly. Oh God! Every twenty minutes, <laughs> dude. Yeah, and if you were to go back even further, and uh, before you you start, you, you co-founded Wire. Did you get interested in the crypto world through the Bitcoin white paper? No, so I'm, a, I'm more of a video game kind of person. And so someone someone at this old, the company I used to work at, I think, or as a friend of mine, he was talking about like this digital currency. And it was more like, I was looking at it from the lens of like, like a World of Warcraft kind of, or I was actually, I think at the time looking at it, yeah, like gamers, like, you know, digital gold kind of thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Okay. If you can port it from game to game, then that makes the games all sort of one collective game together. Wait, so somebody in the video game was telling you about Bitcoin or like early, early on when you were yeah, like this gaming? Yeah, this was like 11 or 20, no, 2012 probably. And they're like, oh, there's this cool thing, this digital currency. Wow. I was okay, like, well, so- what is it? Yeah, anyway, but, but long story short, we put together, I think we put together a bit of money to kind of like just buy some to be like, oh, cool, let's play around with it. And then that was sort of the start. And then after that, I was like, oh, this is super cool. But I was always looking at it more from like, a, oh, this would be mad if there's a currency for the world of gaming you know like whether it's like you earn money <laughs> through playing half-life or counter-strike or whatever it is and you are taking your earnings from that over to another game like dota where you can do in-app and that's kind of the lens that i was looking at it from so not so much like proof of work cryptography and all that kind of stuff but more just like oh sick this is a gaming right. currency so you were you were kind of ahead of your time then because your lens is coming to fruition now with the uh, play to earn and a lot of yeah, yeah. the 
mechanics uh, that were bro- you know brought to 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 real life through NFTs and w- within games that allow people to create these mechanics. Yeah, that says non fungible. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, 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 totally. It's bad. <laughs> non fungible human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not watching, Michael has a, a hoodie that says non fungible human. Sorry, yeah, I forgot. There's only one of him. Non fungible human. Only one of one. That's our superpower, right? That's right. We're unique. That's it. At least for now, until they start cloning us. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's weird how we don't take advantage of that enough, but we don't sort of prioritize that enough. Everyone wants to be special. Everyone's, it's like, bro, you're born special. Like, you're very precious. You're one of one. Right, you're, like, you're think unique. That is a limited. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. you're an NFT. Yeah. Literally. Eventually, you I might mean, be in the RC20 once they start pumping us out. But <laughs> Yeah, once you start, yeah, cloning, send you to the clone factory. <laughs> Yeah, but but no, I th- I've always thought of it more like from the gaming side. But obviously, you know, as I've like gone into the industry and gotten to work with people and stuff, you know, then it's become mm-hmm. more of like a you know a money ledger. You know, like that's the global ledger for for yeah. value would be something like Bitcoin, and then you've got you know Ethereum, which is sort of aiming to be this Swiss Army knife. Which I think they're doing like for what they're trying to do. It seems like they're getting most of it accomplished. But yeah, I mean, I just found it always interesting. It's like literally a record of truth. I don't think we've ever had that exist on earth, something that is unbullshittable. And so I think that's super interesting and why so many people find this almost dogmatic vibe when they're using cryptocurrencies. Like people are diehards, right? You know, you look at Ethereum, they've got diehard Ethereum people. You look at Bitcoin, you've got diehard Bitcoiners. And it's because this lens of truth is so absolutely honest that people almost have this weird affinity or attraction to it um, because I don't think we've ever had anything like that in history other than the sun in the sky, which doesn't bullshit us. It rises every day. It goes to bed every night and it rises every morning. That's its job and it's been doing it forever. So it's kind of weird. I think like, you know, blockchains in general, that's, that's something that's really interesting to me. That just premise of not changing. Yeah, but what do you think made Bitcoin uh, successful? You know, early on, a handful yeah. of, technologies such as eCash or Nick Sabo's yeah. BitGold, which attempted to do what Bitcoin did. Like, What elements uh, or components of Bitcoin do you think were almost a necessity to it catching traction the way it did? Was it you know timing coming after the 2008 financial crisis? Yeah, I think that there's a bunch of flavors to it, right? If you want to go for the timing one, then yes, you know, it's just after Michael Burry and the big short kind of vibe, like that whole energy mm-hmm. that was surrounding that. Uh, you know, 2008, there was all this GFC, global financial crisis. But then if you look from a technical standpoint, uh, solving the double spend problem, which was one of the limitations on other attempts at creating a digital currency. But I think, I think it's in the execution. Like, if you think about it, let's imagine you're Satoshi Nakamoto for a second and you make Bitcoin and you're like, holy shit, this is irreversible digital money. That's mad. So who could get mm-hmm. value from that? Porn sites could get value from that gambling sites could get value from that because they've got the highest reversing payment like rate out of anyone else in the industry. And so if you think of this, like if you're an architect like Satoshi, when you're making something, like if you're an architect, your goal is not to uh, make a flower. Your goal is to design a seed that grows into a flower. So the seed looks nothing like a flower. So when Satoshi's thinking about it, he's like, okay, well, I've got to plant this seed. So I think it was so successful because the way that the seed was planted, it was planted to the right people with the right motivation. So you go to cryptographers that are interested in it from a, wow, this is a really intriguing, you know, computer science problem that looks like it's been solved. They've got a much different motivation to keep excited about it than let's say a VP of business development at a, you know, an online gambling company. Like that makes it propagate in a much different way where it probably prioritizes mm-hmm. short-term incentives. So I think the success has been on the, the very slow and methodical pace that it's taken because it, for a distributed system to grow correctly, it's got to be very, very basic in its, like, in its principles of value. Whatever it's doing, like whatever its value prop is, that must be incredibly basic because if you have multiple value props, it becomes a governance issue where it makes it really challenging to govern different topics because you've got so many different topics to choose from. So if you kind of keep it boring and simple, like, you know, there's a, the, the saying that Bitcoin's like a pet rock. That's bad. Pet mm-hmm. rocks are great. Um, I don't really think, I don't have a pet rock, to be honest. I've got a dog. Uh, it's probably better than a rock. But I mean, if your goal is to build something that never changes, then 
pet rock is the perfect example of something, you know, like it, that's, that's its goal. It might not be sexy. It might not be exciting. There might be way better things you can do, but you know, I always think of this sort of this phrase or this mindset where, you know, focus isn't what you do. It's what you say no to doing. And so when you say no to doing a lot of things, you kind of shrink the scope and the probability of being unfocused. Now in a protocol context, that means trying too many things and having like too many loose ends where a vulnerability could occur or you might lose different market share and different things. But if you just hold the line and do one thing, one thing really well, one thing really well. And we always hear it, but I think now it's going to be much more illuminating now that we have so many attempts and failures and Mm -hmm. success. Like you look at the people that do things really well, like that are very successful. So I think Bitcoin is very successful. I think obviously ETH is very successful, but I think it has its a, a sharky waters now that people are trying to compete with it. But then someone like MakerDAO, MakerDAO is, you know, focused on lending collateral and producing DAI. Mm-hmm. And they've taken a very slow, methodical approach to it. It's a massive behemoth now, but that's supported by just years and years and years of work that people have done. To each to their own, but I feel like the most successful strategy is people that really pick one primitive or one thing, and then they become the bedrock for the rest of the industry. Could be wrong. What do you think of the narrative, whereas the Bitcoin white paper in late 2008, early 2009, mm. when people were reading it, it had a lot of focus on um, peer-to-peer payments. Yeah. And then it's, it kind of got its footing and product market fit in more of a digital gold narrative yeah. uh, as it evolved. Do you think it, it stays in that narrative or do you see it uh, evolving outside of that digital gold narrative back to payments? It'll evolve. Like it's all relative, right? Here's the thing. Bitcoin is a proof of work system and a proof of work system is literally like bound to the laws of physics. Just like you and me. Like if I pull my jumper up, it's going to fall down. Like that's physics. The same thing happens with a proof of work system because it's got a direct relationship with the amount of electricity used and the output on the network. And so if you think of it like this, I tend to think of it as whatever everyone gets it at a different stage. So some people might come in and it's a store of value for them and other people might come in and, you know, it's something more like cash. So I'm going to be less inclined to spend Bitcoin if I don't have a lot of Bitcoin because I'm trying to acquire this super asset, right? Or whatever, whatever your asset of choice is, sound money, whatever. But let's just take Bitcoin. If I'm trying to acquire Bitcoins, it means that I, I want more of them and I'm probably not willing to spend them yet. Now, if I go through two bull markets and I'm up eight or 20 X or whatever, my inclination to spend them is going to be much higher than someone who has no Bitcoins and is just coming into the market. And so it's sort of like it, it, like money must take different phases because, you know, a store of value isn't a store of value unless we both agree that that's valuable, right? Like, let's say you're a, you're a shop and I'm trying to buy something from you. If I offer you Bitcoin and you never heard of it, then you'd probably be like, well, I don't right. want your beanie nothing, babies. Right. Yeah. But if everyone's over, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Now we can use it as a medium of exchange because we kind of both agree that this is a medium to exchange value through. And then, you know, once everyone uses it as a medium of exchange, then everyone basically says, well, there's no point constantly updating our books, you know, based on the exchange rate. Let's just make it a unit of account too. So we measure our success or failures or profits or losses in Bitcoin or your asset of choice, whatever it be. But I think that's the narrative. So money must take that. It's just for each person, it will take a different trajectory. Yeah, it's definitely... Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read the book uh, *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari. I've heard it. I've heard of it. Everyone not hugs that book. I haven't read it though. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a whole chapter focused on like why sapiens, human beings, are different from animals, and one of the things is that we can get large numbers of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people behind a single ideology. Right? Mm. Uh, we could get common collective belief in something that's greater than us, right? So we can all believe, and that's the same reason why we could all believe in religion, why we could all believe in Bitcoin, why we could all yep. believe in a, in a common reason for war against another country. Mm. So it's these large networks of our brains that can get behind these collective beliefs. Yep. So it's powerful. And, it um, totally is. And that's like the X factor, right? Coordination. And if we look at what's made crypto yeah. valuable, it's solving coordination problems. 
coordination is this scalar particle of evolution where those that can coordinate can share information. Those that can share information can then have more interpretations of the same information and so on. And so if you look at quite literally, let's look at Ethereum, right? Ethereum is really valuable today. I actually think that Ethereum is less valuable and Web3.js is the money shot. That's the really valuable thing because that's the plumbing that connects your MetaMask to a website. Whether that's on Ethereum, Avalanche or you know, Binance, it doesn't matter really. It's this signing process of communication. And so Web3.js is quite literally the messenger of everything. Like, you know, if you think of a, a message control room of all the things going between Web3 and Web2, like between your MetaMask and some web page, Web3.js is this sort of hub where everything gets routed through. And so I look at that as being super valuable. But again, it comes down like whatever the same in the same context as Sapiens, like coordination is proof that you can scale whatever you're doing. So whether that's technical or whether it's communications mm -hmm. uh, in public channels or, you know, evolution with sticks and rocks. Like if we can communicate that there's a bad guy over there, we can work together to eat the bad guy or to kill the woolly mammoth or whatever it is. But yeah, the coordination is something humongous. I, I spend a lot of my time doing looking at coordination stuff with time and clocks and CPU clocks and stuff like that. Because for that same reason, because I'm like, mm -hmm. how do you get everyone marching to the same beat? Because shit just works way easier if everyone just agrees on shit out of the box, right? You know, it, like instead of having to kind of like keep dra like pulling everyone up, obviously you've got to educate people, but it would be really cool if people could just like, yeah, yeah, things are easier when you're both aligned, when you're all aligned on some common, common ground, obviously. Anyway, that's some word soup for you that probably didn't even answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> Is there someone we could speak to about uh, daylight savings time? I, I still man, people don't like it, do they? That or... Yeah, that's a big <laughs> thing now. People are like, oh, you know, fuck daylight savings. I mean, to be honest, I don't really. I just assumed it was relating to the planets and. I didn't know the story. Shit. It was like something with Benjamin Franklin in England with a little lamp that he was standing in front, of the, you know, the Queen with, and then something happened. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, daylight savings. How good, huh? You know, to 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 kind of roll with what we were talking about earlier is the, yeah. the evolution of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and then DeFi, decentralized finance. And that's kind of given anybody with an internet connection their own financial ecosystem. So yeah. a lot of times you hear of people going bankless yeah. um, via crypto. Um, and that doesn't mean that you just have access to a bank. It means you have access to all the traditional capabilities of financial ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Whether it's lending, borrowing, trading, uh, using banking resources, or sending payments, receiving payments. And DeFi allows you to do that with just a connection to the internet. Yep. So, you know, it's a natural extension of, of you know, having some programmable blockchain. Uh, in, in this case, be, you know, Ethereum plus all the layer ones. And then you, you have this other component, which, you know, I, I want to expand on with you is NFTs, which has taken everybody by storm. Yeah, you know, non-fungible tokens, whether it's you know whether it's collectibles or game NFTs or you know real-world assets representing real estate in the form of an NFT. Yeah, uh, but to give more context to the listeners, like the the way, at least the way I try to think of these pillars, where you have DeFi as one of the pillars of financial sovereignty, mm. you know, plug into the internet and have access to this banking infrastructure. And the other component is NFTs, which is almost like digital private property, right? Yeah. Um, the ability to own things in this new world. And if you're yep. a believer of the trend that people are spending more time online, right? They're living their lives online, building their businesses online, meeting their significant others online. They're spending more time online, less time in the, in, in Everything, like the physical world. Everything is a sinkhole. Like it's a black hole. Everything yeah. that you do in real life is probably going to get digitized, you know? And you can think about this, yeah. like just a question to ask people before they, you know, if they're, any, if they're challenging that thought, well, you ask them this, what would you rather do? Lose every photo you've ever taken on your iCloud or throw out a photo album that you have at home, like an old photo album. And, <laughs> and usually yeah. most people would say, I value all the photos on my phone. Now the photo album is really valuable, but most people like, they kind of get it now. They don't have a million photo albums sitting in the corner of their room. They've got a million of on course. their device. Right. You're because, losing a lot. 
Right. You're losing your life, so to speak. Right. <laughs> totally. And it's, it's a very real thing, right? You know, when, like, if you think about where are you born, what country are you born? If I'm born in Sydney and, you know, now you think about where, like the digital passport equivalent is sort of like, are you Android or iOS? And then that kind of is like a, you know, like it's a separator of experiences because when you message someone in this green message, it's like, oh, well, let's move to WhatsApp, which is another common <laughs> ground that we probably both have or Discord or Telegram or whatever. But you kind of see it's like digital environments, digital countries, that same essence. And, you know, like I think about Ethereum, right? Ethereum is kind of like Europe where there's sort of, you know, quite literally like Europe where they've got a bunch of different things going on in the middle of the same continent. And then they ended up sort of standardizing it to make the euro, which is sort of this, you know, this currency that just works across all the different current countries in Europe or most of them. And Ethereum is kind of like that, where, you know, you've got different protocols, which would be sort of like countries. You've got Compound, you've got Maker and stuff, but they all speak to the same standard, which is Ethereum, because it's the same. They're all built on the same foundation, which would be like a continent. That's a good analogy. Thanks. What do you think... Uh a problem with that might be, um, you know, in, in the in analogy of countries back when I was a student of uh, finance and economics yeah. and the European Union, one of the problems they had is that, you know, if, if Greece was to produce uh, a lot of olives or wine or cheese or whatever mm-hmm. in a certain period of the month and the central bank needed to control the interest rate for all the economies mm-hmm. all at the same time, with all these different economies with different flavors, yeah. um, that became a little problematic. 100%. You couldn't be as targeted or focused for that specific country. Yes. And that becomes, that's sort of like, you know, each country having their own rules, they usually do for a reason because it's modular, right? If you think about it, like, like if you think about DeFi being Lego blocks, if they were all bound to the same governance proposals, like let's say Uniswap, Compound, Maker, all that were bound by the same governance behaviors or quorum rules or whatever, then that would make Maker, Compound and Uniswap probably all move slower because they would always have to move in lockstep, which is good for a certain right. thing, but it's not good if you're trying to create an individual modular piece of you know machinery, let's think of it for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm thinking about competitors like Avalanche and all this stuff, that's sort of like the EU building a bunch of bridges and tunnels from the EU to another continent. And and they get all the benefits of all the infrastructure, all the trade that was built on top of the EU. So let's say olives in Greece, cheese in wherever, blah, 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 whatever the fucking exports are. But it quite literally allows you to export the good that you're producing. So if you're compound and you're yeah. producing savings rates, then you can export those rates pretty easily across chain. So Avalanche has got a lot of things going on now that I noticed with like, you know, Trader Joe's swap where you kind of bridge some ETH, you wrap it, and then you start doing all your mm-hmm. stuff there because it's cheaper to do it. It'll function exactly like, you know, real economies. And there's no, there's no reason why it won't, especially if they're all running on proof of work systems, which is basically still physical. So if it's bound to the physical obligations of real world, like existence, physics and anything, then odds are it's going to still behave very similarly. Now, if obviously if ETH2 uh, comes out with staking, I personally think, I just don't think staking, I don't want to get into it, but I just don't see how staking secures a network when the network's value prop is to produce money. Like it produces currencies, right? That's what ETH does. It creates tokens and currencies that represent value. So to stake, meaning you're putting capital at risk, it's kind of unrisky because you can always make more capital pretty easily. Like capital is very accessible when you've got all these sort of money printing factories Mm -hmm. making tokens. And I'm not against it. I'm excited for all of the different attempts, but you know, there's a lot at stake, no pun intended. There's a lot at stake now for (laughs) ETH. So I'm like, Oh, like if I was running the ship, which I'm obviously not, but I would think it's very sharky waters. And so I'd be really reluctant to make a change because you know, that's what people do. Like, People capitalize when people are in the middle of change. Like that's how they disrupt countries mm-hmm. and elections and stuff is when there's division, it, it gives the easiest time for people to come in and kind of make sure that that division stays permanent and it's not temporary. So anyway, I, I don't know. I think that's something interesting, but I don't even know how I got to where I got to. Yeah, wherever we are, we're, we're meant to be here. So <laughs> <laughs> what do you think like a clear cut definition is of proof of work versus proof of stake? 
you know, for, for the listeners to, to clarify uh, those two definitions. Imagine your partner and it is their birthday, right? Your significant other. You get them a card with a really long written note in it and it's got glitter and you put it, you really make, you decorate the card. You didn't have enough money to, to buy them anything special, but you wrote a really nice long card, a really meaningful card, right? Comparatively, you have two cards. One is the really long note and the other is an empty card with a hundred dollar voucher in it. So like a hundred dollars, like a hundred dollar note in it. What one is your significant other more likely to value? Empty card with a hundred bucks in it. It's like, oh, it was an empty card. Empty card with a hundred bucks in it. Okay. And the other one's a really heartfelt hand. Okay. Yeah. The other one is sentimental, right? Of course. And that means, and you know why sentimental is valuable? Because it shows effort. And you know, it says you put in working, you've done, you've gone above and beyond just pulling a hundred bucks out of your wallet and putting Mm -hmm. it in a card. And that level of give a shit is quantified by the term we give sentiment. And so I don't know an example where that doesn't exist. So that's for me, I'm like, well, proof of work will always trump proof of stake because proof of stake is sort of like another example. You know, for listeners, if if you didn't get that card example, like the example for a birthday card or whatever with your significant other, then think about this. Who is going to understand the pain points of, you know, let's say the starving kids in Africa. Who's going to understand the pain points more? Someone who spends... $10,000 $10,000 writing a check donating to them or someone who says, all right, I get paid a hundred dollars an hour. I'm going to commit a hundred hours. I'm going to fly there. I'm going to dig holes. I'm going to feed people. I'm going to smell the dirt. I'm going to hear the sounds. I'm going to be live and breathe it for a hundred hours of my time. And that's still $10,000 and $10,000. The proof of work, which is the person going there, there's no doubt about it that they will have their senses are more impacted than your senses of just writing a 10 grand check. And so when you think about that, who understands the problem and who can empathize with the users the most and the pain points, I have really hard time seeing where that, like where proof of work doesn't become the main way to understand the problem the best. And if you can't understand the problem the best, it means that the people who can understand the problem the best have an edge over those who don't. And if someone has an edge, that means it's not really a decentralized system. It means it's a cat and mouse game of security. And so I might get, might be, maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. But just to clarify, the people that you're talking about right now are the nodes or miners that are, are basically validating transactions and ensuring that yeah. the system is maintained properly. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to call it basic functionality, even though it's very complex, but yeah. uh, that basic functionality that's required. It's table stakes for the network to operate. Yeah. Right. Like everything else is worthless if this doesn't work. That's a thing. Everything else is literally worthless if it doesn't work. And it's not like, oh, yeah, kind of worthless or sort of maybe worthless or that's just your opinion. It's like saying your right, house is gone. built on quicksand. Yeah, it's a beautiful house. I'm not lying. It's an amazing house. It's the best house I've ever seen. I'd love to live there. Only problem is I don't feel safe at night because it's built on quicksand and it's going to go under any time. And people are like people feel like it's an opinion. It's just not. People take the problem is people take security for granted and they don't really understand. Oh mate, do they ever? Jesus Christ. Like people people rip on MetaMask, like they rag on MetaMask. And I'm like, look, I get it, it's not perfect, but dude, these guys haven't been hacked once. And every single other thing that touches keys in your ecosystem has almost been hacked. Like maybe a little thank you might go out. Like it probably wouldn't hurt the team. So anyway, but I feel, I feel like, you know, everyone's getting, it's a learning curve, right? Like, I mean, I feel like I came to these understandings from paying my own tuition, losing a private key or having a computer right. compromise. You know, everyone has this sort of this learning curve, which is, let's think of it like a proof of work. What makes you understand security more? reading about it and understanding it or getting hacked and never wanting to get hacked again. Most likely it's the physical one that impacted you physically, right? Of course. And that's why they always say practical application, learn on the job, things like that. Like that whole mantra of, you know, the people that study academia for years, but they don't have any practical application of the academia. Those people usually end up very unsuccessful and sort of in hey, the spiral. Those who get rug pulled often eventually learn to do flips, you yeah. know? There you go. If you get rug pulled enough, you learn how to rug pull. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you pay your tuition. But but it, it's definitely imperative, right? So, like, w- w- we stand on the shoulders of giants, and there is so much thought that has gone into uh, building 
all the tools and the systems in place that, that people may take for granted now, you know, in their defense, as, as the system evolves, it becomes so complex. You, you could only uh, have the bandwidth to focus on so much in terms of like building a top of it. You know, for NFTs specifically, what excites you about NFTs? Like, is, is this something that you saw coming or is this kind of something that came out of left field for you as well as it did for myself and uh, a lot of my other friends? Yeah. What's your perspective there? I think NFTs are cool. I think, I mean, like the NFTs is just a technical term for something that's unique. So do I like unique shit? Yeah, yeah I think it's cool. And what do you mean by that? When, it, when it's a technical for ERC-721 token standards? Yeah, I mean, like, people are like, oh, NFTs, they're all scams. I'm like, whatever. Like, maybe, I don't know. But, I mean, the term NFT is a non-technical term. It's non-fungible token, which means any anything that is unique, basically. You're an NFT. Right. I'm an NFT. Like, it's just a lens that you're characterizing something through it. So, it's pretty stupid to blanket statement and say, oh, you hate them all. It's like, okay, well, then you hate any individuality. And if you're fighting for self-sovereignty, then you're the most contradicting mofo that I've ever spoken to. So, you know, you got to get making sure that you check these kind of loops of contradicting comments. Okay, so NFTs. Look, I think they're cool in certain capacities. I think interesting use cases, like, you know, when I was at Wire in 2018, the idea was, uh, you know, we, we produced an NFT for all verified accounts, optionally. If you're, if you're verified, you can get an NFT minted to your account that basically says you've been verified and you're compliant. So that if you have decentralized mm -hmm. exchanges that aren't being able to acquire enough liquidity because their counterparties you know, require onboarding and verification, well, there's a way to say like, hey, we've verified this person and we're fully regulated. No, you can't have all their information because you don't need it. But FYI, they're verified and we'll be, we'll be liable if anything you know, says otherwise. So that's like an interesting use case. Then you've got all these like, you know, these cartoons and punks and shit like that, which are cool, but they're pretty artistically boring in my opinion. Like I, I find like, yes, they're cool and yes, it's novel, but look, it's a bunch of pixels. There's no artistic quality to it, right? I think there's some really cool ones like that take advantage of a lot of the generative art like opportunities that the chain gives you. Like if you think about NFTs, like you're an artist with a canvas that infinitely evolves. Dude, the last thing I'm going to be looking at is like, oh, how do I get a picture on here? It's like boring. Like that's kind of like saying, you know, let's, let's, turn our, our, let's turn our magazine into a PDF and post it on a web page. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like you're putting a square peg in a round hole almost. Yeah, to clarify what we were alluding to is that combining a level of art with some something that comes from on chain uh, in the form of like the token URI that, that has an element of randomness that you can utilize to then you know generate some art based off of that kind of variable or whatnot. Yeah, it's almost like you're using that as another input, right? Mm -hmm. And it creates this sense of liveness uh, where it's like, oh, that's provable that that was minted at that time, one of one, because the calculation did X, Y, and Z. Not someone that's just sort mm -hmm. of said, okay, let's upload a thousand different pictures and a thousand different attributes and just wait and see what everyone cooks up. Like it creates more of a heartbeat. And I always think those things are kind of cool where they've, they've got different elements from the chain incorporated. And I think that's yeah. becoming more of a thing now. You know, there's things like birth blocks. Yeah. hundred percent generated on chain. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got different passports where, so there's another one that's like they do the ArcX, they're doing, DeFi passports, which I think that's super interesting because it gives you a rolling score of how you behave in different platforms and protocols. So if you're a really good borrower, mm -hmm. it gives you a really good borrowing score. If you're a really shit borrower, it gives you a shit borrowing score. Things like that. Like I just think there can be so much more opportunity. I think of it from a multi-sig perspective, it makes it really easy. So the you know if you send an NFT around that is it, it's got an image of a key on it and the holder is the signer. That makes comprehending what mm -hmm. multi-sig tech is like. It's like, hey, if you've got the key NFT, that person, whoever's got that key is the signer. And then, you know, you've got a contract that says only the person holding this NFT can sign for X, Y, and Z. I think it gives an element, a UI element to security transferability, which is one cool thing. But then there's like, you know, art. Art is a big industry. It's really big. It's kind of literally 50% of existence where art is one side, science is the other. But the funny thing is science validates art and art, art, the creativity path is 
like, you know, artists, they create something uh, or they perceive something, right? So it's an artist perspective where they perceive something, whether it's what the future looks like, whether it's what the pyramids are about or whether it's, you know, uh, what New York City will look like in 10 years. I don't know. But these interpretations of something and now that's the perception. And then you have science, which creates those perceptions. So, you know, this idea that, you know, science fiction influences what we actually build in real life you know, distributed networks, people trying to build warp bubbles at NASA because that was a warp bubble idea that was in, you know, cartoons and movies, Iron Man suits, you know, that was a cartoon character. Now we're trying to get these soldiers that have got these jetpacks on them. You know, and like, I I think the best, the best example that I think of is Tony Hawk pro skater. Like that evolved skateboarding as an industry so aggressively because like you could go on, jump on a rail, do a kickflip, keep grinding, do another kickflip. And that just wasn't a thing. People didn't jump on rails and do kickflips and like between grinds, but that influenced them. And Bob Burnquist talks about it. Who's one of the characters and pro skaters in it. And he's like, yeah, it made me invent a whole bunch of new tricks because I could just like, I was copying what the game would do and then seeing if I could do it in real life. And so it's this, this perpetual motion machine, right? Of creativity where it's, you know, art, art perceives something, science creates it or debunks it and rinse, repeat. And then that's how we kind of just evolve as people. It feels like anyway. Well, one of the forefathers of uh, sci-fi, Isaac Asimov uh, from the Foundation series uh, famously mm. said that I will write about what greater men will build in the future. Mm. There you go. So definitely a lot of truth to that. Yeah. But it's, it's also important to like, to understand that, right? No one's right. Like science isn't right. That we used to think the earth was flat. We knew the earth was flat. We knew the earth was the center of the universe. And everyone thinks, you know, the funny thing is everyone thinks that today we're too old to discover the star, too old to discover the earth and too young to discover the stars. And there is just an absolute ticking time bomb of knowledge that will crack open everyone's minds to change that perspective. Because like, we, it's not like we, we sort of feel like there's this mantra that we've finished everything. Like, okay, well, we know we can't travel at the speed of light. We know we've got distributed systems on earth. It's like, bro, we've got work to do. Like, what the fuck? We don't even know what would happen if Wake we cut up. the earth in half. <laughs> Literally, it's like, get to work, you slackers. Stop being lazy. <laughs> I think I think that plagues our our societies across the entire world now is this uh, mantra uh, or dogma rather that yeah. uh, we we've got it all figured out and everybody uh, needs to kind of get in line or otherwise you, you should be on outskirts. Yeah, it's kind of I find it kind of eerie. It's sort of like you know how they say like buy when be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy or whatever. And it's almost like you know everyone seems to think that we've finished the game. Like, you know, oh, going to Mars is the most exciting thing we can do. Bro, going to Mars? Why the fuck? We already know what's there. Very little. But, okay, we'll go there and waste a bunch of money and stuff. Now, I'm not, I'm not disputing pushing the boundaries. I'm saying that's really short-sighted. The universe is really, really big. There's probably a whole lot of stuff we could do. But I just hope people don't feel mentally complacent where they're like, you know, oh, we can't do anything. It's like, no, there's a whole generation of people. And like, you know, Bitcoin, I think specifically Bitcoin is going to be really influential on that. And Ethereum is going to be really influential on things surrounding Bitcoin and surround the, the things that it influences beyond Ethereum. It's like a chain of events, mm-hmm. right? I think of Bitcoin as being really boring, like the sun. The sun is really boring. People don't, there's no playgrounds, there's no roller coasters on the sun, but it just works. That's its job. It rises in the morning and it sets in the night. And remember the foundations of earth, we can't live unless that thing does its job. If the sun doesn't rise tomorrow morning, we start dying. Every, every single second we start dying basically. And if you think about the relationship between the sun and the earth as Bitcoin and Ethereum, that's kind of the relationship I think of. Ethereum is much more fun to play around on if you're a human being. It's really shit to play around on the sun because it's boiling hot and we die instantly. But it means that the environment that Earth has is only because, you know, the sun does its job. People need to think of it more in terms of a relationship. Symbiotic relationship. Yeah, they're codependent, like literally codependent. What you're saying is that they're not necessarily adversarial. They're more symbiotic and they can and should coexist. 
They have to. They quite literally, they have to because every time right. Ethereum does something good, it will push Bitcoin to challenge that in any capacity. And any time it does something bad, it will help Bitcoin avoid you know missteps. And this is something that's a function of any distributed system. It all has to work together. And Bitcoin and Ethereum are both dependent on the same thing. Like they are at their roots identical almost, where they both depend on cryptography and they both and cryptography depends on prime numbers. So if they've both got the same dependence, it's like all of almost us arguing about having the same ancestors, like the same grandparents almost. Like we came from the same spot. So it's like you could probably get better further ahead if you work together or you identify what you're both good at. Yeah, otherwise people just like I've watched people in Bitcoin and Ethereum, they just argue till they're blue in the face about, you know, who's right. And it's like well, if you both think you're right, you're both wrong already. That's a fact because you can't both be right. And you can't understand sort of the relationship that they have if you both think it's possible for you to both be right. Anyway, I think that's just kind of an interesting observation. I think it's safe, safe to say that uh, any, any kind of maximalism can be a sure way to miss a lot of great projects and a lot of talent that is building alongside everybody else yeah. and just trying to create something new and useful. There is naive maximalism, which is where, you know, people have been here for 20 minutes and they think they know everything and they kind of start parroting off what they hear. Right. Those people get crucified usually pretty quickly because they just, they, you, once you get humbled and you realize like, oh shit, man, I really didn't know about this. Then it's usually humble pie. It's like, okay, I might just take it slower in how like vocal I am with certain things. But I think maximalism is really important in general for for everyone because you need people that champion on the core values and remind people what what the point of it all is right you need someone to remind everyone what is the core value prop like it like at a company you always remind your team what the north star is or what the goals are for a quarter or or you know for the year or whatever it is those targets and those goals they make everything that year having that goal in place it makes every single decision much more fluid and easier to execute when we know we're all marching to the same common goal now and you know if you look at a fork it's like what like in 2017 with the uasf on bitcoin for example that was a very big political fork where people said no we want bigger blocks because it should be more like cash and people said well no we just want immutability because we don't want it to change and that's more important than whether we can send a hundred dollars to grandma you know uh, really easily and so that idea is like that then becomes a fork in ideology, if you want to call it, or consensus, whatever it is. But it basically is a fork in opinion, for lack of a better term. And so with that, it's best identifying that. Like, figure out what are we and what aren't we. To clarify for myself, but just this, this is really interesting because I give this a lot of thought as well. And maybe you could even help me clarify it. But when you're talking about these forks and these forks of ideas and technology, who mm. are the arbiters? of deciding uh, and gathering coalition from, you know, who, who exactly is making the decision to press the, the fork button on GitHub or where, yeah. wherever it is, you know, who, who is that person? Who are those groups of people? So that's a, that's a really good question. And I wish I had a better answer than, than the one I'm about to give you. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but it, essentially it's core developers that have to push an update, right? So there, there are people that have, you know, you know, there's six people, six of eight people that can push the button and they're a bunch of developers. Now, the developers propose things where now the network, it's live in the network. So some change, let's say you've got a thought and I've got a thought. My thought doesn't exist yet. I'm saying we need to make a change. And so you go, let's take Ethereum last year, for example, with the EIP 1559 update. And this was a change in the protocol rules. So basically there was a Proposed change, and that's what EIP stands for, Ethereum Improvement Proposal. And it's basically saying, we think this is going to improve the network. So now they write a spec, someone writes an implementation. And then, I mean, for lack of a better term, basically it gets, you can start running that version of the network. And then you have what's called a fork in the network where it reaches enough people are running it at some point, point in time or will run it that you're then gonna have the network split into two, those that do run it and those that don't run it. And it's almost like 
a change right. in history now where it, that's why it's called a fork in the road. Like, I mean, a fork because the network partitions basically it goes like from one to, okay, these are the people that liked it and didn't like it. And now it starts splitting on its own trajectories. Right. At a certain block number here, we're exactly. going separate directions. We're going separate directions. No love, no hate, but we're going separate directions. Usually there's tons of hate because everyone thinks each other are trying to fuck each <laughs> other over. Well, I'm sorry for the swearing. Um, but, but I mean, like, you know, that that's a thing. And, and so that, that is usually the process. Now, Bitcoin's been way, way more conservative in how they operate things like this. Like it's had two changes and they've taken five years to make each change, you know, not literally, but, you know, they're very slow, methodical things, not, you know, drastic, big, fast changes. Like Ethereum's just changed its whole incentive model. That to me is mind-blowing that the community would get behind it because they're like, oh, there's a UX problem with gas. It's like, you know, for the life of me, I've spoken to a lot of people in the Ethereum community and they're really smart people who I really, really like, I've, you know, worked with them in the past or whatever it is. And I value their opinion, but I just feel like, you know, I, I just don't get it. I don't get how burning the native supply currency, like if, if Ethereum is meant to be a world computer, right? It means that we want people transacting. You don't want people hoarding Ethereum because that means the network is less functional like Bitcoin, right? People hoard Bitcoins because they don't want to throw it around because they think it's valuable because of the supply scarcity. So if I start shrinking the supply of ETH, that means it's going to give it more scarce properties. And now that's why people say it's, you know, ultrasound money. But what happens then is people are reluctant to spend it. And so one of the beautiful things about Ethereum now is that people are so reluctant to throw money into Uniswap, make transaction approvals, do all this stuff. Like it's earth, right? We want to play. There's playgrounds, there's roller coasters, there's lots of stuff to do if there becomes a path where it's like, oh, well, if I hold this, people are going to burn it and it's just going to go up in value. I'm going to be reluctant to part ways with my ETH, right? I'm going to be less inclined to make that swap on Uniswap. I'm going to be less inclined to top up my CDP weekly with Maker because I don't need to, but you know, like I don't want to part ways with this currency. And so I just think that, you know, for a computer, like if you think about Ethereum as a world computer based on Vitalik, I would say a world computer, you don't want limited amount of requests for the computer could ever make. You want, you want it to be seemingly infinite. And when it's a limited amount, it changes the whole behavior dynamic on how people will use it. They'll be less inclined to try new things. They'll be less inclined to, I don't know. That's just, that's a bit of a rant, but I just, that's, a, that's sort of the part that I couldn't get my head around. The only thing that I guess I could, I could say to that might not be the, the best counter argument, but I guess you have Ethereum as this ecosystem that allows for mm. other things to quickly be built on top of it and one of and improved on and some of the things that came out of it were these layer two solutions. Yeah. And perhaps we wouldn't have access to layer two solutions so quickly had the Ethereum ecosystem been not as quick to develop or improve or make changes or whatnot. So it's interesting. I mean you, you definitely you definitely always deal with trade offs. Of course. And everything is cause and effect. You're hundred percent correct, right? Like you know, masks, for example, we thought that like everyone was saying masks to COVID is a huge solution, but now you've got Greenpeace and environmentalists saying there's two and a half billion masks in the ocean that are right, now a problem right. for them. So it's like one person's problem is another person's solution is another person's problem. Look, I, I, you never want to knock trial and error because I'm personally like I'm, my entire life is a big pile of trial and error. And so I'm like anyone that's trying anything, uh, you have my best spirit you know yeah like good luck to you kind of thing but sometimes it just doesn't add up in my head where i can see them being successful but i'm still i mm -hmm. hope you do i hope you do great but i just have a difficult time yeah. seeing how we get from zero to one so wanted to ask you given where the prices are recently recently uh, seen a lot of uh, bear market tweets uh resurface and if i had a dollar for every bear market tweet I probably wouldn't have to worry about a bear market anymore. <laughs> uh, so where do you think we are in the market cycle and what, what's your general thinking here? For the people that can only listen and not see what I did, I yeah. actually just lick, lick my finger and stuck it in the air like I'm just, you know, totally guessing. No, look, to be honest, I was, really, yeah, I was really surprised how the market operated in Q4 last year. So I think by the end of Q1, if Q4 hasn't happened in Q1, 
it's a bear market and it's a real slap in the face for a lot of people. So <laughs> including myself, but you know, that's a gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving, right? That's why, you know, it's very exciting. But I mean, like, you know, so one thing actually I, I remembered, I didn't, we haven't talked about, but like NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens, mm-hmm. individual, you know, unique, one of one. They're really valuable to some people. Now, if you think about like scarcity, right? This limited edition behavior, like what makes NFTs valuable? People want to buy them, right? And so you can have a really big paper worth on NFTs, but you can't put it to work. And so this is like right. one of the things I was thinking is like NFT projects is a couple of things. One is they should be fighting hand and tooth to make their NFT as a collateral type at whatever venue it is. Because if you can use your NFT to get liquidity, let's say I own five crypto punks and you know, a combined worth of $5 million, I can sell that for $5 million or I can go and put that, uh, lock it up and someone says, all right, they're worth 5 million, but we don't know how much they're actually worth. So we'll just give you a million. And it's better than nothing, right? Like, let's say I get a million bucks for them and I've still got ownership, but I can just borrow against them. And much like we do with make it out and CDPs, but what that, what does that do to the actual buy side demand of the NFT art? It makes it go through the roof now because not only do I want this piece of art, I now know that the guy has no incentive to sell it to me because he's already putting it to work. So now you get this whole side of, people that want to buy your art versus people that want to buy your art and know that you have no motivation to sell because the art is going to keep going up. The more people want to buy it. And it basically you're creating a, almost like this artificial scarcity loop where if you can put your NFT to work and borrow against it, that will amplify the value of your NFT community exponentially because you're just taking more out of circulation because the odds are someone who needs, you have got 5 million bucks worth of crypto punks, if you can get $2 million for them uh, in terms of borrowing, like you can borrow up to that much. I mean, that's a risk off right there. Like you're already de-risking the value of that, the NFT portfolio, but you're already creating more buy side action now for the actual piece of art. Does that make sense? Or is that a bit word soupy? No, it makes uh, a lot of sense. I mean, uh, shameless plug here. I mean, that's exactly what we're working on with uh, with Defrag is, is allowing people to collateralize their NFT assets uh, and extending uh, a loan against those assets. Yeah. It is tricky to do that because you're dealing with uh, an asset that is A, illiquid. So the turnover, to put into perspective, uh, recently had uh, Cyril from Numius who's working on a, a pricing oracle and they're doing a lot of mm-hmm. analytics on you know, the board Ape Yacht Club. And one of the, yeah. one of the findings was that on average, uh, a board ape exchange wallets 2.3 times so some more than others mm-hmm. right because they're more popular ones but on average uh, 2.3 times so uh that means that if you were to uh liquidate you know and have some liquidation engine right that needed to sell to the market uh it could effectively mm-hmm. only do that 2.3 times so and that's for for a lot of different reasons one good reasons is something you and i spoke about earlier is like sentiment mm-hmm. right sentimental value mm-hmm. like a lot of people don't want to sell their um, crypto punks or bored apes. And usually the motivation, if they do sell it, is a financial motivation, right? So if you give them an alternative financial motivation, now the right. idea of selling just vaporizes almost. Right, right. You, you're giving them another outlet, right, to get some liquidity yeah. uh, without letting yep. go of their asset. And, um, yep. and I think the industry desperately needs this, not necessarily for just for people taking their loans, but for validating NFTs in the first place, for creating this liquid environment, uh, these these liquidity pools that are associated with various different NFT projects, and and later on you can see a universe of of yeah. NFT projects where you know that you know Project A has its own liquidity pool, Project B has its own liquidity pool, and uh, people can participate in those NFT projects not just by purchasing yeah. the NFT itself because it might be too expensive, but by staking yep. themselves in a different way to the liquidity pool, right? Providing liquidity yeah. for that ecosystem. So Absolutely. It, it solves a few problems at the same time. And we definitely definitely are focused on, on uh, the issue of, of liquidity in the space. And, you know, like you were talking about earlier, right? With pillars, like different pillars in the ecosystem with DeFi and all this kind of stuff. Like 
the place to be in a distributed system is being the pillar is good. Being the messenger is better um, mm-hmm. always because you're the, you're the control center pushing the messages around. Just like, right, you know, we mentioned right. web3.js is the real value prop because that's what connects everything together. And now for like, you know, when it comes to DeFi, mixing in DeFi behaviors and options contracts and things like that, like what you guys are doing, like I'm a big fan of it because it's a value add. Like you take the primitives of one, one side of the industry, the primitives of the other side, and you combine them to make a third thing, which is, you know, you've got NFTs on one side, you've got DeFi options on the other. Now you've got a third thing, which is combining the two and making a, a new liquidity channel for for artists or, you know, people holding, holding what they perceive as value. That's exactly right. Yeah. Taking these components and putting them together. Of course. Assembling different Lego blocks in different ways. That's why you want to make them the strongest, sexiest Lego blocks possible so that they're reliable when other people go to put them in their Lego kit. One other thing I was actually thinking about is I actually think most NFT platforms, I mean, most NFT teams or whatever you want to call them, the, the groups putting them out, whether it's forgotten runes, crypto punks, whatever, those guys, I think everyone will end up having a physical component to their NFT. So like Unisocks, right? Unisocks are, they're a pair of socks. Now they're valued at 120 grand or whatever. Those socks have a floor price and it's not a Unisocks socks floor price. It's a literal floor price of how much is the cotton that these things are made out of worth. So no matter what, I should always have a floor price. If any NFT project, like there was an NFT project that was making sushi bling pendants, right? But it was backed by, you know, four and a half thousand dollars worth of this diamond encrusted necklace. When you think about that, it means that the floor price for that object is whatever the value I can redeem for the physical component. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, just to, to rephrase it uh, in a diff- in different way, is you're saying that alongside a digital NFT that somebody owns, right? That's yeah. uniquely theirs. Yeah. With each of those NFTs, you would have uh, another physical object that the person would get in their possession uh, yeah. that whether it's made out of gold or diamonds or whatever other material yeah. that has yeah. some commodity value that if it, if, if you yeah. were to melt it down or, or get it down to its basic value. Take it, would it have, to a pawn shop, whatever it is, but it's got yeah, value whatever somewhere it is, else. It, yeah. you know, I, you, let's say the NFT at some point is worth $4,000, but all all hell breaks loose everything goes to shit uh and then you're sitting there and you're like oh well at least i have this piece here at my home that's like this gold nugget yep. that if i'm not you know I, I could go to the pawn shop and they'll give me 838 dollars for it so that would be my bottom line for floor price essentially right and so like if you think about people in positions of appraisal and underwriting which is a big part in nft land right appraisal who gives it value how much can you appraise it for right. trying to find out what's its resale value and it's very hard to get integrity behind that. And so I think what we'll see a lot of is to increase the integrity in floor pricing and to make, so teams can become more to like, remember there's a lot of value in making an NFT that can be really liquid, like through platforms like you guys. If you do that, mm-hmm. there's a path to doing that successfully. And one of the paths is making a floor price easier to recognize. Because if you're trying to underwrite something to borrow against, the more I understand what the floor price of that actual thing is, with with very good confidence, the more I can offer you liquidity up to that floor price. I can get closer to that floor price, right? The more accurate it is. So I actually think a shortcut for most NFT teams will be to produce, and it doesn't have to have the same amount of value, like a CryptoPunk chain that's worth 5 million bucks. Like I'm not saying that. But I'm saying most projects will start from the get-go with some kind of physical asset that is redeemable. That's got a, a whole separate amount of you know conditions that come with it. But yeah, thinking of Unisocks, if you're trying to take Unisocks as collateral, I could take the floor price of whatever the cotton is worth. Now, that's a really shitty floor price, but it's a thing. That scales, that model scales. Right. So I think that's something we'll see in the future. I mean, if teams don't do that, that's a very easy shortcut to getting... Look, you never know what will come to fruition in the future, but uh, yeah. you know you can definitely see. I mean, as as an NFT increases in value, so for instance, when you mint, it might only be worth three hundred dollars, but yeah. if if the project is successful and it's worth yep. thirty thousand dollars, and every member that has this thirty thousand dollar NFT now all of a sudden gets mm. you know three cubes of gold or whatever it is delivered to their the address that they provided or something. <laughs> so uh, previously we were just discussing. 
an important component of the NFT space, which is price discovery, which is super important. Uh, I mean, yep. you know, that's the foundation of, of, you know, pricing everything for, you know, being able to collateralize the NFTs, give out loans against the NFTs and, you know, price discovery improves over time, right? As, as more yep. builders build and create uh, products that give a, an appropriate price to specifically to the floor uh, of NFT projects. And it's definitely a data point that we are highly dependent on to extend loans, you know, to price out collateral. Yep. So before you go, are there any resources that Michael Dunworth looks at every day, you know, whether it's uh, somebody following Twitter or it's some podcast or anything that you would recommend to the listeners that they can level up their game and learn something new? Great question. You know what? I think I don't have a good answer other than trying, like doing things, basically just using protocols. That's always the best the best way to figure things out is using them and understanding them. Yeah, other than that, I feel like I'm just going to parrot off the same sort of things. You know, there's great podcasts out there that are super informative, that are really well produced. I feel like all the resources are there, but definitely if I could say one thing is just right. try, try things. Like, take, like literally... Put some money in your wallet, waste it. It might be a waste. It might not be, but try it. You'll understand everything 4,000 times faster. <laughs> well, way to, way to end it. <laughs> All right. That's, that's great. Well, listen, thanks so much, Michael. Thank you for joining me. Uh, it was an incredible conversation and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.